1: Holy Father, around the globe today at this time, in hours that have just passed, in hours that are coming, you are gathering your own together to worship. We thank you that you have carried out your mission, that you are carrying out your mission to gather in your sheep from all across the planet, to gather them in, to build your church, Create them to know you and to worship you, and you are doing it. Thank you for that. Thank you for how you have done that in our lives, how you have called us to yourself, how you gather us together here now, today, here to worship you. Thank you for that. Lord, use us in that process. You are more awesome than we know. You have done far more than we can dream of. But we do know this, this much, that you have brought us by grace into relationship with you and you sit us here now with your scripture preserved for us. Thank you for that. And Lord, teach us. Show us some of what you've done in our lives with the gospel and then move us inside to follow after you. Accomplish that around the world today, Lord, in your church, and accomplish that here in this room. Honor Christ in our midst. Call us after him. Father, do that, I pray. In the name of Christ, for his glory. Amen. What do you want? First words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, way back in chapter 1. Two of John the Baptist's disciples had just turned after him, and, and Jesus heard them following, turned around, and cut right to the chase with them and with us. What do you want? Do you want to see some amazing display of miraculous power that will wow you? Do you want a free meal to satisfy your needs? Do you want me to give to you some code of behavior, even if it's a tough one, but some code of of ethics that you can follow and keep it under your control? Is that what you're after? Or rather, do you want a real cure for the sin and guilt and condemnation that haunts you within and keeps you out of relationship with God? Do you want to see Him, to know His glory, to walk in His righteousness, to experience peace within where all self-effort has failed? Do you want to know joy, hope, have a heart that's full? Is that what you want? That kind of spiritual life is what Messiah came to give. And this Jesus is that Christ. God come down in flesh. Died on a cross to remove sin. Opening up a way where people and God can meet again. Raised victorious to prove it. If that's the kind of thing you want, if you want to know God and have guilt removed, peace restored, follow me and you'll find it. That's the call of the book of John, and we're going to look at that as we finish this whole gospel today in chapter 21. Last week, we saw the second-to-last scene at the, the Sea of Tiberias. We're still at the shore of that sea this week. We just saw him revealed as the Lord of the catch, the one who is sovereign over the calling in of all of his fish, the catching of all of his people. Calling them in. And in the meantime, sustaining those who are the fishermen, his people. Sustains them spiritually and physically. We saw that last week. And here now, continuing on with that, is the final scene of the book of John. Let me read it. Chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. He turns to Peter. Has some encouragement and an exhortation for him and for us. Twenty-one fifteen. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him, and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who was bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that this testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Right after breakfast, with them all still sitting there, lounging around the fire, savoring the last morsels of fish, Jesus speaks up and addresses Peter. And what he says to him has a little bit of a bite in it because he's trying to accomplish something in his life. Simon, son of John, kind of a formal address, as if you were to speak the first and last name of a friend. If you were to say, Steve Clark, I'm the only Steve here. Why be so formal? Because he's trying to do something here. It's a formal statement. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? There's a bit of a zing in that. Some people disagree about what that last phrase, more than these, means. It it could mean, and some argue that it does mean, that Jesus is saying, Peter... Do you love me more than you love these disciples, or more than you love these fish that are there, all the fish they just caught? And grammatically, it could mean that. But I don't think that makes as much sense. Peter has never had a problem loving the disciples more than he loves Jesus, or loving fishing more than he loves Jesus. He didn't come back here to go fishing because he was abandoning Jesus, he came back because Jesus sent them to Galilee. So Peter's problem is not that he loves his other stuff more than he loves Jesus. Rather, I think, Jesus is saying to him, Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? That does connect to Peter's past. Peter has had a reputation of previously acting and speaking and hinting at that he does think that he has superior love and commitment to Jesus. Amongst all the twelve, I'm most for you. That's Peter's stance. Hinted at in some places, blatantly stated in others. Consider, for, for example, chapter 13, the Last Supper, where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. He's washing the feet, moving around the circle, and he gets to Peter, and Peter says, oh, no, 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 you're not washing my feet. He washed all their feet, but not mine. I don't think that lowly of you. Implication, they do. They didn't have any problem with this. I have a problem with it, though. You're not my servant. You're my Lord. I've correctly identified you. Or, or later in the meal, Jesus says that he's leaving. And Peter says, Why can't I follow you right now? The pronoun, I. I want to follow you. I'm going to go wherever you're going. I will lay down my life for you. Or as Luke records the story, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Or as Mark reports Peter saying, Even though they all fall away. Who's the they? they got the disciples. Even though they all fall away, I will not. I'm with you. Peter's the one carrying the sword. Peter's the one who attacks the servants. When they come to get Jesus, Peter thinks, I am most committed to you. I'm the one who most loves you amongst all of these folks here. I love you best. I love you most committedly. But standing around the fire in the high priest's courtyard on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter finds out who he really is. And to a servant girl's face, he denies that he even knows Jesus three times. And he weeps bitterly. He thought he was up here, and he's down here. And Jesus says to him, reminding him and them, what Peter's attitude was, do you love me more than these? Peter responds and doesn't address the more than these part. He's humble. I picture him hanging his head. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. By the grace of God, he does love him. And he's going to say later on, you know everything. You know you're reminding me of something kind of painful. You do it three times, and I'm grieved by that. But you know where my heart is. You know you have me. You know I'm yours. I jumped into the water and I swam here. I am after you. You know that. And then he says to him, Then feed my lambs. Here, Peter, take this precious thing that I've bought with my blood, and take care of it. Somebody that you don't know about, that you're kind of on outs with, that you're not sure about, you don't give them your infant to care for while you walk away. Somebody who stabbed you in the back, abandoned you and hurt you, you don't say, here, ha- have my little child, take care of him. I'm going to come back in a couple of weeks. You don't trust him. But Jesus says to Peter, here's my flock. Care for it. Shepherd it. Take care of it. Feed it. He's doing something publicly here. In the same way that the boasting and in the same way that the betraying was public, here now is the restoration that's public. He says it and then he does it again and again, three times in all. Same question, same answer, same response. Now I probably need to comment on something here. Some of you have probably heard sermons or perhaps done Bible studies on this passage and many teachers have made a pretty large point out of some of the Greek words in this passage, particularly the fact that when Jesus says, he asks the question, he uses the word love, that's one word, and then when Peter responds, he uses the word love, that's another word. And teachers will talk about those two words and make a a pretty significant deal out of it, especially when Jesus, the third time he asks the question, switches words uses Peter's word for love. A lot's made out of that. Perhaps you've heard that. I've heard it pretty frequently. However, for several different reasons, this is not a good way to look at this passage. To focus in on the word differences and and gain the meaning from that. For, For one reason, the whole book of John has made clear that John thinks of those two words for love as being essentially interchangeable. Both of those words can be used to describe the disciple whom Jesus loved. Both of those words can be used to describe how God the Father loves God the Son. Both of those words can be used to describe how Jesus loves Lazarus. Outside of the New Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses those two words in many ways interchangeably, you use them in the same situations, in the same verses, in fact, to describe the exact same thing. The words are really not that different. There are a few other reasons, but the best evidence is actually found in the fact that Peter is grieved that he's been asked the same question three times. Though the third question uses the other word for love, it's the same question three times. We're barking up the wrong tree if we try to make the most of the importance rest on the different words. Most of the importance in this story rests on what Jesus is actually doing in asking three times. The threefold repetition is what we're supposed to latch onto here. Peter denied Jesus three times. And here he gets a chance to affirm his love for Jesus three times. And Jesus commissions him to his service three times. Threefold repetition in that day was a way of emphasizing something strongly. Think of how the Bible describes God as holy, holy, holy. It's a strong statement about the holiness of God. He's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Peter, with this strong threefold denial, receives an equally strong threefold affirmation and restoration. He's fully committed, fully accepted, fully reinstated. And it's going to mean something for his life. Peter, here's what your service is going to mean for you. Truly, truly. That solemn introduction, that attention-getting phrase. Peter, listen. Truly, truly. When you were young, you did and you went wherever you wanted. But that's changing for you. When you get old, you're going to stretch out your hands and other people are going to do some things to you that you do not want. Jesus might be taking a proverb of the day and modifying it, but so that we don't miss the point of the modification, John clarifies, verse 19. This was to explain how Peter was to die and glorify God. To stretch out your hands was a euphemism for to be crucified. Peter, you're coming after me, in service to me. It's going to cost you your life. Follow me. Follow me. At this point, perhaps, they actually do begin to walk down the beach, and John follows closely behind, and Peter, thinking through the implication, it's going to cost me my life, says, in a very human way, what about him? And Jesus' response is, who cares? I'm not talking about him, and I'm not talking to him. You, emphasis in the original language, you follow me. I'm not talking to him. I'm not telling you to follow him. You follow me. Last words of Jesus in the book. John adds a few more things to clarify something. There's a, a rumor that developed that Jesus had promised to me to live forever. And He says, no, no, that's not the case. He didn't say that exactly. And then he closes out by saying, this is just the fringes of all that the Son of God has done. There's no way I can record it all, but I have written some. The Gospel of John. That's the text. And as I look at it, it falls kind of into two halves in my mind. The, the exchange of the threefold question, which is a preparatory part, preparing Peter to receive the life-controlling call that he's going to hear from Jesus twice. So I'm going to approach the passage in these two points. A preparatory point, And then a call that follows and that ends the whole book. Let's begin with the the first part, preparatory part. Drawn from the exchange of Peter, Jesus, verses 15 to 17. In Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. In Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. The lingering effects of sin and guilt have been removed, wiped away. This is the effect of the gospel on a person's life. When believed and received, all guilt and condemnation is removed and full acceptance is the case. Peter done something particularly grievous. He denied Christ three times. The others, yeah, they'd kind of drifted away. But Peter says, I'm with you, and then I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And in his mind, and in the other disciples' minds, surely that kind of denial is going to leave a mark. Surely that's going to hold him away or or make him some some sort of quasi-disciple. It's going to have an effect on his service, isn't it? And so to answer that question in everybody's mind, Jesus commissions him to service just as thoroughly as Peter had denied him. Here's my flock. Take care of it. I'm putting it in your hands. Shepherd it. Here, have this precious thing. As much as you've sinned, I've cleansed. Now, not everybody's commissioned to the same task that Peter was called to. Peter's called to be a shepherd. The apostles were called. As Peter himself later writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, elders and pastors are called to be shepherds of the flock. And if I was speaking only to elders and pastors, I'd emphasize a little more on this this task of shepherding. I just say in passing, notice the connection between love for Christ and love for his people. You love me, take care of my people. You love me, do good to them. Feed them, help them, grow them. Significant point in how we show love for Christ, we care for his people. More could be said about that, but I want us to see the main point here. See this main thing. It's not particularly what he's commissioned to, but that he is commissioned at all. That's the issue. You denied me, denied me, denied me. I accept you, accept you, accept you. And I even give you a job, an important, precious job. It's a public statement. He doesn't just restore him. He wants everybody to know that he is restored. He wants everybody to know how he views Peter, what Peter's status in the community is. It's perfect. It's just like everybody else's. It's cleansed. If you're in me, I replace the condemnation you deserve with acceptance and even an assignment. Christian, the same is true for you. The same is true for you. If you are in Christ, condemnation has been borne away. You've actually come to believe in Him. He has completely forgiven you. He delights in you. You are His precious possession. His child cares for you. And He has a job for you in His service. According to your gifts, according to your spiritual maturity, yes. But you're not on probation. You're not held away from the table. You're not damaged goods Hanging forever over here on the clearance rack. It's not the case. He intends to use you in his mission to spread his fame everywhere. To make him an issue, to make him known. So do not be controlled by shame. Do not be held back by your past. Don't doubt his ability or his desire to use you. There is a remarkable blessing here. Not just the forgiveness, but that you would know the forgiveness. That you would know the acceptance in you and in others. Adopt that viewpoint of yourself and of others. We talk sometimes in church about how I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. If that's what you say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, then repent of not forgiving yourself. Hear that. It's sin for you to not forgive yourself. He says, I've removed all the condemnation from you. You say, Your verdict's not good enough. I am holding on to the condemnation. No, you can't do that. Repent. Realize condemnation that was on you has been laid aside. And look around. Condemnation that was on everybody else here that's a believer has been laid aside. Don't hold anything over their heads either. I once met a Christian couple. Who shared with me their personal stories about how they come to faith in Christ? He was a drug dealer, and she was a prostitute, and that's how they met. This was not some sweet little romance. They were pretty clear about it. It was full of all kinds of nasty stuff. But one thing led to another, and Jesus saved them, brought them together, they got married, He gave them legitimate jobs, put them in a church in which they were very involved servants and leaders in that church, and sitting in the living room of their home, knowing about his mid-level management job in a local manufacturing firm, and knowing about her involvement in the music ministry, and and she was a stay-at-home mom of two kids, and seeing all the missionaries on their fridge and all that stuff, you wouldn't know any of their past. Which is why they bring it up. Which might sound a little odd because isn't that usually the kind of stuff that you you cover up or perhaps gloss over with a, yeah, we didn't come from the greatest backgrounds. That's what we usually do. That's how we usually address those sorts of things. But they deliberately brought it up. Why? So as to help people connect the before and the after and to marvel at the God who does that. He takes people from drug-dealing and prostituting backgrounds and makes this of them gloriously. And they're not like half-Christians, partially. It's been removed. All the condemnation's been thrown away off them. And they know it, and they live in it, and they revel in it. They want people to see that and to know this God and so as to be helped to walk that path to wholeness themselves. He'll do that in your life too. That's what the gospel does. They knew they weren't the only people with sexual sins in their past. They weren't the only people with illegal activities in their past, with haunting, graphic memories. They weren't the only people who would feel dirty if they sat and thought about it for a minute. The towns and cities of our nation are full of people like that. The pews of our churches are full of people like that. This one included. And they bring that story up to help people see God takes this and makes this really honest. He does it. He did it in my life. He'll do it in your life. They bring out the yuck and say, look at this. It's ugly. Let's be clear. There is no help in like sugarcoating it and saying it's not really all that bad. It's ugly. Look at that. The child that you had out of wedlock or the child that you didn't have out of wedlock and aborted. The sexual sin in your past. The crooked business deal. The pornography. The gossiping. The relationships that you've severed with your kids foolishly. Look at that. Call it yuck because it is. And then look at Him who takes the deserved condemnation for those things and throws it away as far as the east is from the west. That's what the cross does. You deserve condemnation, deserve condemnation, deserve condemnation and receive grace, 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 acceptance fully in Not halfway, not partially, fully. Now all that stuff is sin. It is. And I have to qualify this a little bit because there will be some folks who claim to be Christians and say, great, that means that I can sin and he'll remove the condemnation. This is perfect because then I get what I want and I get forgiven. And the qualification is yes, no, and maybe. Yes, he forgives. Yes, he removes condemnation. Yes, he'll put you in his family fully and wholly and completely. Yes, even grievous sin, high-handed sin. Yes, that's what sin is. But no, don't be deceived. God's not going to be mocked. You reap what you sow. There are consequences even to forgiven sin, and you can't pull one over on God, which is where the maybe comes in. Because it may just be some folks who say, great, I get to sin and get what I want, and I get forgiven. What your heart actually wants is to sin, not Christ. You might not be a believer. But For those who have come to Christ and have trusted him, He wipes away condemnation from you fully. Forgives you fully. Puts you in his service fully. No strings attached. He wants you to see that about yourself and about others. The cross has made you clean. And that is a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing. And you get your mind around that. You marvel at it. You revel in it. You glory in it. You say, this is how you've dealt with me with all this yuck and you've thrown it away? That's how you dealt with my past? Surely you will deal with me well in the future. Surely you will pour more grace on me tomorrow. What do you have for me? And he says to that the second point, good, now you're ready. Listen up. Follow me. Today, tomorrow, the next day, moment, Moment. follow me the second point. It's a real simple one. That's all it is. The second point is, follow me. The words of Jesus in this passage twice. Follow hard after Jesus, this King, this Lord, this one who was just affirmed as God in flesh by Thomas. Follow after Him. He's going forth to execute His mission in the world, to carry His name everywhere. He's a sent one doing that. He wants to enlist you in that work, and He calls you, come on, let's go. Follow Him after. Follow after Him in that. It's a frequent theme in this book, especially in the very beginning. Chapter 1. Those disciples of John the Baptist coming after Jesus. the, The text says they were beginning to follow And Jesus turned and saw them following, said to them, What do you want? The call continues through that opening chapter, continues on through the rest of the book. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Chapter 10, Chapter 12. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. And here at the very end, follow me. You follow me. It's a suitable summary of the whole Gospel of John. To follow him. Now, if you were in Jesus' day, you could actually follow him by physically walking behind him. Follow him to Galilee, back to Jerusalem, across the Jordan. You could follow him around. But of course he means more than that. He means follow him in here. Walk his path. Walk right behind him, holding on to his coattails, if you will. Your will, your way, your desires, your commands, your hopes, your agendas, mine and becoming mine more and more. Speak, I'll listen. Speak, I'll obey. Lead, I'll follow. That kind of attitude with Christ, that's what he's commanding here, calling us to. Follow him. Lay down all that you've previously held dear. Take it off like a garment and throw it down. All that you've treasured and built your life upon. All of your own hopes and agendas and desires. Put it down. Press after Him. Here is your leader and your champion and He's calling you regardless of the cost. Peter, let me be real, cl- real clear about this from the beginning. Listen up. Truly, 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 It's going to cost you your life. Follow me. It's not just going to cost you an easy and cushy retirement in northern Galilee. Some golf vacations, perhaps, over to Jordan. It's going to cost you everything. Know that. The Romans are going to kill you for sure. Follow me anyway. didn't know it from the start. Jesus isn't trying to pull any punches with him. He wants you to know that from the start too. To fully lay down all that you have will cost you everything. By definition. It'll cost you everything. It's going to cost you all that you hold dear. It's certainly going to cost you time and money that you won't have to spend elsewise. Maybe... We're Americans, maybe not all of us are Americans, most of us are Americans. Maybe it'll cost you your life. It costs Christians their lives in the world all the time. Voice of the Martyrs magazine and church office down here, page four or five, picture of a dead Indian pastor in it. it costs Christians their lives. It'll cost us something too. It will cost you. Regardless of the cost, follow him. Regardless of what he ordains for other people, follow him. The cost won't always be the same. It is so common amongst us to look around and say, but what about? Can't I live that life? It's not costing him or her that. It's costing me. I want to be like that person. And Jesus says, so what about that person? Peter You're going to die, and John's going to live to old age and die of natural causes. Peter, I'm calling you to shepherd, mostly as a pastor-type shepherd, my flock. There's another guy named Saul. I'm going to turn him into Paul. He's going to be a missionary. Plant churches all around the globe here. Different strokes for different folks. You follow me. I'm the king. I'm in charge. Don't look around. Don't get distracted. Focus on me. Follow me that is his call to you to us with laser like focus singular focus like when you're driving a car through a rainstorm a hard rainstorm and you're 10 and 2 white knuckled you're not fiddling around with the radio anymore you're not having conversations with people in the back seat you're not looking around at the scenery you're right there following the white line tunnel vision follow him wherever he leads That being said, it's probably fair to say, why again do I want to do this? It's going to cost me everything I have and maybe my life. Why again do I want to do this? I don't know if I do want to do this. That depends what you want. What do you want? You don't want to follow Jesus if you're just after a cool power display, and a religion you can manage. Don't follow him. There will be some ramifications to deal with later, but don't follow him now if that's what you want. But if you want more than that, listen to chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness But we'll have the light of life. Promise from Jesus. I am, he says. I am the only true light there is in this fallen, sin-cursed, dark world. I am the only light. And if you follow me, you'll walk in that light and you'll see you will have poured into your heart the light of life. Frequent theme in John, you'll have the light of life poured into you. You'll come into union with God and you'll know His glory. You'll walk with Him and experience Him. Know joy and peace like you've never known. Be forgiven. Have condemnation thrown away from you. If you follow me, you'll find that. Come, follow me. He's the one who removes condemnation. He's the one who knits your heart back together, who restores human relationships. He's the place where you can meet with God and find all of the promises of God made yes on you. All of His blessings. He's come the tabernacle among us, the place where we meet God. Through Him were all things made. Nothing has been made otherwise. He has shed His blood to cover the sins of those who trust Him. He has begun the resurrection to show Himself approved. He has gone ahead to prepare a place for you where He will take you to be with Him forever. He is the fullness of glory and will show us that forever. He put us in a place where we will work forever and call it play. Where we will learn and know and grow and be satisfied. And this is just the outer fringes of all that he is and all that he has done. And all that he will be for those who follow him. There's no way that any person could record Everything that he is and everything that he has done. But we have seen some facets of this jewel. John has written some of it. And we've seen. Lay down your life and follow this supreme King Jesus. The great I Am. Who was and is and is to come. Let me pray. You are the Lord. You are the Lord. And Lord, I pray, would you give grace to us, your weak-kneed people who tremble sometimes when we consider laying down everything that we have and everything that we hold dear because the future is not clear. What might that mean for us? Lord, give us grace to see you clearly, to trust you, to follow after you. Knowing, hoping, and trusting in you who has removed our condemnation will carry us all the way to glory. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for sending the Son. Thank you, Father and Son, for sending the Spirit. Spirit, be at work in us to show us Christ and move us after Him into the world. We give you great thanks. Holy, holy, holy God. Amen.